This is 100 Years of Cox. My name is Frances Thompson and I'm telling the story of 10 siblings from the Machel Cox family through the letters they wrote to each other. They were born in England between 1868 and 1884. Seven of the siblings lived in England and Neville, Aldwyn and Wilfred lived abroad in the colonies. The five members of the older family were Enid, Edmund, Arthur, Neville and Wilfred. Then there was a gap and there were five more children known as the younger family, Bernard, Aldwyn, Cuthbert, Avis and Vera. I have finally watched the first series of Gentleman Jack and have thoroughly enjoyed it, which prompted me to go back and reread the letters written by Matilda in the 1820s. She was the grandmother of the 10 Matrilcock siblings and my third great-grandma. If you've been listening for a while, you may remember that I've read a few of Matilda's letters before. If you haven't listened to these previous podcasts, you might want to go back and have a listen. In season one, episode six, I read Matilda's 1827 letter describing how she went down into the foot tunnel which the Brunel family were building under the River Thames. She got a fright and then ran back up the stairs to safety. That episode also includes the letter written in 1867 by the bridesmaid, Eve, describing the wedding of Dr Cox and Minnie. Matilda was Dr Cox's mother-in-law and Minnie's mother. Although Matilda Machel died in 1844 at just 44 years old, possibly in childbirth, so she never met Dr Cox and was not present at the wedding of Charlie and Minnie in 1867. Then in season two, episode six of 100 Years of Cox, which is called Send Horses to Hull, I read two of Matilda's letters written from Leeds, probably in 1823. Then season two, episode seven, was the episode called Anne, Matilda and Vile Colonel Donington. In that episode, I read two of Matilda's letters, written in 1825 and 1826 from Yorkshire, including the fascinating account of Matilda visiting Halifax and meeting the three Walker siblings at their mansion, Crow Nest. After the tragic death of both parents, and then the son and heir, Anne Walker inherited a huge fortune. Anne Walker and Anne Lister are the stars of Gentleman Jack. Here in Australia, I don't think it's yet been on TV, so I got a subscription to a streaming channel and watched the first series, which is a cracking story and makes me want to go and visit Yorkshire again. Matilda Machel was born in the year 1800 in Beverley, Yorkshire. She was the much-loved youngest child and only daughter and was doted upon by her wealthy parents. She was a very eligible young woman and was considered to be the belle of East Riding, if not the whole of Yorkshire. She had a perfect seat on horseback and was a talented singer and pianist. There were many interested suitors, all of whom she had rejected, and she finally married at the age of 27. Matilda was very much indulged. She was possibly a spoilt rich girl, but she did write some interesting letters full of fascinating detail. I have 10 letters which Matilda wrote in the 1820s before she married. All of them were written to her favourite brother Christopher back home in Beverley in Yorkshire and most of them are written from London. During the season, wealthy young women like Matilda lived in London with a chaperone and they went to parties and balls whilst generally on the lookout for a husband. 
Matilda wrote her letters in the 1820s, just after the Regency period, which is the setting of the Jane Austen novels. When Matilda was writing, in 1826, many of London's Georgian streets had just been built, tall, attractive townhouses built from Portland stone. With a keen, observant eye, Matilda describes the people she meets, the carriage rides in Hyde Park, and the people she observes in London. Cuttingly, she also writes about people she doesn't like. I don't have Matilda's original letters. Instead, it is the transcriptions made by Dr Cox and Vera in 1912 that have survived. The original letters would have been written on small sheets of notepaper. Once the page had been filled with handwriting, the page was then turned and written on again, overlaying the first handwriting. Sometimes the page was rotated a third time, this time on a diagonal angle, with yet more news written onto the same page. Dr Cox first located these letters amongst the papers belonging to Minnie, his wife, who had recently died. He knew his children would be interested in letters written by their grandmother and he attempted to transcribe them in 1912. Dr Cox had his transcriptions typed up and then Vera and Arthur added extra sections in their handwriting, bits which they had managed to decipher and Dr Cox had not. Then Sir Christopher and his brother David Machel Cox kept all the many boxes of Machel Cox letters safe over very many decades and they were subsequently donated to the Bodleian Library in the 1980s. If all this had not happened, I would not be reading these letters now. I am indebted to the Bodleian Library in Oxford where all these documents are safely housed. Dr Cox included Matilda's letters in the 1912 Christmas budget, which is where I found them. Matilda's letter, somewhat condensed by Dr John Charles Cox or Vera. From London, 22 Gloucester Place, Tuesday, April 18th, 1826. My dear Christopher, have you had a letter from Oxford yet? I shall be absolutely cross if you have not. I hear that same story here as he wrote to Arthur and Mrs Dan Sykes and said his father was so much gratified with his good resolutions, etc. and that everybody knew the great inducement. Humphrey and James saw him at Oxford. How very much grieved I was that our plan was not put into execution, but it was too delightful to take place. I cannot help, though I confess it is very foolish, looking out of the window with a sort of restless expectation of seeing what would surprise me almost beyond my self-command if I did see. But enough of this. If you have heard, do let me know. I must scold you. Think of sending my trunk by the coach. It cost my poor pocket 14 shillings. Now this is more than I can afford. Oh, how money does fly. It is dreadful. The amusements and sightseeing are very expensive. We called on Michel the other day. He first asked me if I was for the profession, and on my answering in the negative, he said it depended on what part of the town I lived in, whether he could give me a lesson or not. Oh, Gloucester Place. Yes, then I will look at my book. After looking at it for ten minutes, with great importance, he said, I will come on Friday next, and in all probability will be able to attend the young lady for 55 minutes. One guinea an hour. Think of me and pity my fright on Friday next at four o'clock. 
We went last night to Mrs Coleman's, to a little party to meet the Worsleys. We had a little music and just a little quadrille. The young Mr Worsleys are very agreeable, and Mrs Worsley is wonderfully polite to me. I heard someone telling her who I was engaged to, so I suppose I may be in time to somebody. Miss Dobson was very much improved, but does not sing in time between ourselves. Mrs Worsley thanked me for my charming singing, such a delightful variety from the present dismal Italian style. Humph, say I to myself, I shall not get to the opera ball, I fear. Mrs Thompson does not wish Margaret to go. I see no chance unless we go incognito to the pit. We absolutely to give seven guineas for a box on Saturday when Papa comes. Yesterday we went to the British Artists Gallery. I never saw so bad a collection of paintings. Sir George Beaumont has just got his collection hung in the National Gallery. There are some exquisite pictures and a small Correggio for which they gave 3,000 guineas. But I am afraid I did not sufficiently admire it. My bonnet is just come home, but it does not quite please me. It is too much of a hat. Tell mother I paid two pounds, five shillings and sixpence for it. Cap included. Not dear, I think. When I went to Mrs Murray to ask her to send my silk gown home, I saw it in the piece. Not even cut out. I was very cross. I will be as economical as I can and I'm really frightened. The money goes so fast. We dine with the Miss Aldersons on Thursday. Mrs Worsley on Monday, Mrs Dan Sykes on Tuesday, on Wednesday a music party at Mrs Brent's and Mrs Coleman's ball on the 4th of May. I am in great distress for an evening dress. What a trouble money is, especially ready money. Mrs Coleman says I must get one dress that will do for all the parties. Think of my stumbling on Mr Holdsworth in Regent Street when I was walking with Sir Henry Milman. I had a long talk with Mr Marcus Worsley about Mark Bowley. He quite confided with me that he had not met with his just deserts, but he had seen two different accounts, one in the Morning Post, copied from the Leeds Mercury, which gave a favourable account of the affair. I am hard at work practising. Marcel is only coming once a week. If I find I like him very much, I shall try for twice. I wish you would come to town. You would see all the fashions. All the distingue young men are covered with whiskers. And moreover, they have their proper quantum of buttons on their coats. And I think Regent Street is more beautiful than anything I've ever imagined. I have a habit of looking about me when walking in London, but I cannot acquire the nonchalant habit of some women who stare you so quietly in the face. As to staring, I never saw anything like the impertinence of the town men at exhibitions, etc. It is so different a style to what I am accustomed to that it makes me almost quite cross. Margaret sends her love and begs me to tell you that she has got neither a little son nor a little daughter, and moreover that there is none coming which distresses her extremely. They come into Yorkshire in the summer when they must come and stop with us and we must have a party. I've seen John once, which I think is very shabby, but I suppose he has other fish to fry. 
I want to go to another theatre, but the expense is so great. I've already spent five pounds. I pay for everything except the dressmaker. We often think what bargains mother would make. There is a damaged French white-figured silk, beautiful, which the man offered me for five shillings a yard, and I was just about going to take it when I found two yards so fly-blown that I could do nothing with it. I am sure that mother would have had it in spite of the damage. Have you sold the mare? If so, mind and get something to take her place ere my return. For if there are any people at Beverley this summer, ride I must. For Mrs Worsley's ball, I am to have my hair cut and dressed, five shillings. Oh, I shall cry. But I am not to have a single ringlet cut off. Sir Henry Millman says he is glad to find one lady who prefers the becoming to the fashion. He thinks the odious frizzing is so hideous, but it is particularly becoming to Margaret. Now, goodbye. This is a dull letter. Give my best love to Daddy and tell him to prepare himself for Michelle's pupil. And also, love to Mamma, who I hope takes good care of Jack. Yours ever affectionately, Matilda. Notes on Matilda's letter. Have you heard from Oxford? Matilda impatiently asks Christopher. She is sitting at the window of 22 Gloucester Place, looking out onto the street at the carriages going past, with a restless expectation. She is hoping to see someone, although she realises this hope is futile. It is perhaps Edward Smith, who she will later marry. Perhaps it is news of him that she is waiting for. But Matilda gives no further details, and I am merely guessing. Matilda then scolds her older brother Christopher. Think of sending my trunk by the coach. It cost my poor pocket 14 shillings. Matilda says that it was cheaper to send goods via Hull on the steamer, which presumably came down the east coast from Yorkshire and then up the Thames to London. It cost more to send items via land using a coach and horses. Quite inconceivable to us today. Imagine getting your suitcases sent by ship from Hull to London. Matilda says her money flies. Everything in London is expensive. Matilda mentions many names, telling her brother, who is back home in Yorkshire, who she has been meeting and what she's been up to. I think her companion and chaperone was another young woman called Margaret, and I think Matilda might have been staying with Mrs Thompson, who I think owned the house at 22 Gloucester Place. Matilda was a rich young woman who socialised with the wealthy and high-class people of London. She starts with Marcel, who is her piano teacher. He is easy to find online. He was a piano virtuoso and a composer. He taught the piano to both Felix Mendelssohn and his sister Fanny Mendelssohn in Berlin in 1824. He also knew Beethoven and conducted the London premiere of Beethoven's Mrs. Solemnis in 1832. Matilda knew Michelle in 1826. She describes how she and her chaperone called on Michelle and asked if he would teach her. Oh, but it depends in London where you live, was the answer. Michelle taught the children of London's upper classes. 
When Matilda says she lives at 22 Gloucester Place, a newly built and fashionable part of town, the answer is yes. But he spends 10 minutes importantly looking at his appointment book before announcing, in all probability, I will be able to attend the young lady for 55 minutes on Friday next at four o'clock, one guinea an hour. Matilda is then full of fright and no doubt goes home to Gloucester Place to practice. There are many parties and dinners, and some music and a little quadrille. The young gentlemen are very agreeable, and Matilda entertains the guests at dinner by singing. Matilda loves music, and she wants to go to the opera, but she cannot without a chaperone. She considers getting cheap tickets and going incognito to sit in the pit, if that is the only way she can get to the opera. I think she's talking about the Covent Garden Opera. The first theatre on the site opened in 1732. That one burnt down in 1808. And the theatre Matilda visited to see the opera in 1826 was the second theatre on the site. That one burnt down in 1856. And the current Covent Garden Opera House opened in 1858. Matilda's father was Christopher Machel, with one arm, a wealthy man from Beverley in Yorkshire. He left his other arm behind in Boston in 1775 at the Battle of Bunkers Hill during the American Revolutionary War. He was a musician with a fine voice and he doted on Matilda, his youngest child. The decision has been made to get a box at the opera next Saturday when Papa comes to London, which will cost seven guineas a vast amount for one evening of entertainment. Sir George Beaumont is an interesting character. He was an MP, a baronet and an amateur painter and he played an important part in the creation of the National Gallery in London. He bought a lot of paintings himself, adding a picture gallery to his house for displaying all his artwork. Before beginning to campaign for the creation of a National Gallery in England, he promised to give his collection of old masters to the nation if a national gallery was created. It was, and he did. And the date was 1826, which matches perfectly with what Matilda writes in her letter. She says, Yesterday we went to the British Artist Gallery. I never saw so bad a collection of paintings. Sir George Beaumont has just got his collection hung in the National Gallery. There are some exquisite pictures and a small Correggio for which they gave 3,000 guineas, but I'm afraid I did not sufficiently admire it. Matilda is a fashionable young lady. She's just got a new bonnet, which cost two pounds, five shillings and sixpence. Please tell mother how much it cost, she tells Christopher. But Mrs Murray, the dressmaker, hasn't yet cut out Matilda's new silk gown, and she's very cross about this. She thought her new dress would be ready by now. Poor Matilda is in great distress about her lack of an evening dress, and Mrs Coleman advises Matilda to get one dress which she, which she can then wear to all the parties. Matilda tells Christopher she sees all the fashions in London. All the distingue young men are covered with whiskers and moreover they have their proper quantum of buttons on their coats and I think Regent Street is more beautiful than anything I've ever imagined. Distingue, this is a word that means the young gentlemen are of a distinguished appearance but other young men in town are impertinent and they stare at Matilda in the street. Matilda wants to go to the theatre again, but tickets are expensive. She has to pay for everything except the dressmaker. 
I imagine that Mother, back at home in Yorkshire, is paying for the dresses. I like the fascinating anecdote about the fly-blown white silk. A man offered Matilda some beautiful white silk, five shillings a yard. Presumably it should have cost a great deal more than that. But Matilda notices that two yards of it is fly-blown, which means it would be most unusable, so she doesn't buy it. But she later reflects that her mother would have bought it and would have managed to use it despite the damage. Apparently, if fabric is fly-blown, it means it is dirty and infested with flies' eggs. There are dinners at Miss Alderson's house, then a dinner at Mrs Worsley's, then a dinner at the house of Mrs Dan Sykes. I think Matilda is referring to Mr Dan Sykes, who was Member of Parliament for Beverley in Yorkshire, so quite likely that she will be going to dinner at their London house. Then there is a music party hosted by Mrs Brent, and then Mrs Coleman is holding a ball at her house. This was the season in London. All the wealthy, fashionable people are there. There are dinners and parties every night. People go to see and be seen, and the young ladies, accompanied by their chaperones, are on the lookout for a husband. There is a note in the margin written by Arthur, Matilda's grandson, one of the ten siblings, and he's commenting on Marcus Worsley and his mother, Mrs Worsley, saying that this was the family that the Coxes knew from Terrington in Yorkshire. Terrington and Barton Street are two nearby villages north of York near Castle Howard. Arthur's father, Dr Cox, was the rector of Barton Street and Arthur's wife, Dorothy, was the daughter of Reverend Wimbush of Terrington. So there were connections between the wealthy residents of these Yorkshire villages. The Worsleys were clearly another Yorkshire family. Matilda is going to have her hair cut and dressed for Mrs Worsley's ball and it will cost five shillings. Oh, I shall cry, she writes and tells her brother but she's not going to have any of her ringlets cut off. Matilda has ringlets, whereas her friend Margaret has her hair frizzed in the new style. Interestingly, Henry Millman, the poet, tells Matilda that he likes her hair in ringlets and says it is becoming, rather than the new fashion of frizzing hair. Henry Millman thinks the odious frizzing of hair is hideous. Matilda mentions Mr Holsworth and Mr Marcus Worsley and Mark Bowley. Someone has been in trouble and it's all been published in the newspapers. When Dr Cox transcribed these letters for his children to read in the early 1900s, he commented that he recognised a lot of the names Matilda mentions as being people from Yorkshire. Matilda is walking with Sir Henry Milman in Regent Street. In 1826, Matilda is 26 and Henry Milman is 35. I don't know why she describes him as Sir Milman, as I don't think he was a Sir. But perhaps she's talking about his father, who was a Sir. I'm not sure. Anyway, Henry Milman was a poet and a successful one rather than a penniless one. He was Professor of Poetry at Oxford. He'd also recently studied theology and become ordained. He became Canon of Westminster and then was Dean of St Paul's Cathedral in London in the 1850s. If you're not from a church background, we're not talking about the canon that goes bang bang in a battle. That canon is spelt with two N's. An Anglican minister attached to a British cathedral often has the title of canon with just one N. 
I want you to imagine walking along Regent Street from Piccadilly Circus. If you don't know London, why not go online and use maps and do a virtual walk along this street with its glorious architecture? I grew up in London and I always thought the statue at Piccadilly Circus was the Greek god Eros. But apparently I, along with many other Londoners, were mistaken. And the statue at Piccadilly Circus is actually of the god Anteros and not Eros. Well, imagine walking along Regent Street as the road curves, then it gets to Oxford Circus and then All Souls, Langham Place and the BBC building. Matilda was walking along Regent Street in April 1826, I think with the poet Millman or his father. It had only just been completed and she says Regent Street is beautiful. It was a grand development, replacing the earlier medieval street layout and the whole street was designed to be ornate with upmarket shops. No common everyday shops like a greengrocer's would be allowed there. Today Regent Street is occupied by flagship shops and the street is still a smart, expensive shopping street. The buildings are of Portland stone and originally there was a colonnade so pedestrians didn't get wet from the rain. If you look up, there are many carvings, cherubs with wings, lions, statues, heraldic shields and wreaths. On the original Liberties building are oriental statues and Britannia is there high up with Union Jack Shield and Trident. If you go down Great Marlborough Street, you can see the ornate Tudor frontage of the later Liberties building. The Cox family knew Liberties well. They bought their curtains and tablecloths there. Before Neville got married in 1911, whilst Marie was still on the ship coming over from South Africa, his sisters took him to Liberties and helped him buy linen for his new household. Matilda doesn't mention any of this. In 1826, she and Henry Millman are walking along Regent Street as it is newly finished and a fashionable part of town. And during the season, the wealthy people walked and rode in their carriages to see people and to be seen. Matilda was interested in what the women were wearing, their style of bonnet and how they had dressed their hair. Of course, Bond Street, Oxford Street and Regent Street still exist on the Monopoly board as one of the expensive set of properties in London. They were expensive then and they still are today. Matilda is staying at 22 Gloucester Place. I think her hostess was Mrs Thompson, but the letter is not clear. It's worth having a virtual stroll along Gloucester Place using maps. Not many of London's Georgian terraces have survived intact, but in this street, many rows of grand houses survive. Numbering may have changed, and I'm not entirely sure, but I think number 22 is on the corner of George Street and Gloucester Place. These ornate city mansions were built with high ceilings, huge windows, fine mantelpieces. The large reception rooms were grand, and Matilda would have been staying in a very luxurious and expensive house. There may have been gaslights in the house by the 1820s, or it may still have just been candlelight. Matilda would have been writing her letter at a table by the window in order to make use of the daylight. The servants would have had tiny attic bedrooms, or perhaps accommodation out at the back, near the scullery. And the mews round the back would be where the stable was, with the carriage and horses, and the men probably slept above the stables. If you don't know the word muse, it's spelled M-E-W-S. In the 1820s, they were the scruffy, dirty places, occupied by the carriages, the horses and the stable hands. 
Today, muse houses are small, exclusive properties filled with character on narrow cobbled streets, mostly free from traffic, tucked away behind London's large, expensive townhouses. Matilda is hard at work, practising the piano in the drawing room for her lessons with Michelle. If she likes him, she will see if she can get two lessons a week. Michelle only agreed to come and teach Matilda upon discovering that she lived in one of the grand mansions of Gloucester Place. Matilda wants to know the news from home. Have you sold the horse? She asks her brother. If you have sold the horse, make sure you buy another before the summer. When Matilda returns home to Beverly, she must go riding, especially if any of the smart set are at home in Yorkshire as well. Elsewhere in the letters, Dr Cox says that his mother-in-law had a perfect seat on horseback and was known as the Belle of East Riding, if not the whole of Yorkshire. She was one of the eligible young ladies. Matilda apologises and says this is a dull letter. Give my love to Daddy and tell him to prepare himself to listen to Michelle's pupil. She knows her father will be proud of her piano playing abilities. Give my love to Mama, who I hope is taking good care of Jack. I expect Jack was probably Matilda's pet dog. Matilda's first letter was written on April 18th, 1826. Christopher's reply has not survived, but Matilda writes a second letter to Christopher in Beverly just a week later on April 27th. I was originally going to include both of Matilda's letters from April 1826 in this podcast, but that will make it too long, so her next letter will be in the next one, where she continues to describe all the people she meets and what she thinks of them. Matilda fascinates me. She was a young woman trapped in the oppressive society of London in the 1820s and she did what was expected of her, although her own choices might have been different. I've never even seen a picture of her. Dr Cox, in 1912, wrote about the paintings and drawings of Matilda that are on the walls of Longton Avenue in Sydenham. I don't know which branches of the family inherited them or maybe they were sold in an auction. If you'd like to write to me about anything that's in the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. My email is matrilcoxletters at gmail.com. You can also contact me via Twitter at Cox Letters, where I share all sorts of photos and pictures. 100 Years of Cox, the Matril Cox Budget Letters and all content is subject to copyright and belongs to both myself and the Bodleian Library in Oxford. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox, Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.